it was a joy to have so many of uh, your young people out of Resolve. We're just humbled by what God's doing at that conference. And when uh, I was talking with um, Jason about uh, passages that I could preach on, uh, we, we talked about a few, and uh, I asked him just a few weeks ago if I could if I could readdress Romans 5 that I did at Resolved, and he said, well, sure, but you've already preached that text and some of our students have heard it. But I reminded him that that, that night I was running 103 temperature and freezing at the same time. Um, I, I, I was uh, on chills and um, let's just say it the way it was. I was on serious amounts of cough medicine and not exactly sure everything I said. So he, he allowed me to readdress uh, that passage, at least for those who are at Resolved. This has been a passage I've been studying for a while. If you take your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 5, I have been tackled by this text. I was in my daily Bible reading and came across this passage. It's a familiar passage. You're going to note it right away when you read it and when you see it. But it was one of those in which God had a specific ambush for my soul. And it was exactly what we just sang about, the power of the gospel in Christian living. It's so easy for us, I think, to think that salvation is about the cross and sanctification is about our own effort. And easy to forget the power of the cross that we just sang about. This text, though, has such an accent on the believer's trajectory that should always be crossword. Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 11. Let me read those to set them in our minds. For while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone may dare even to die. But God, God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. And not only this, but we also exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have received the reconciliation. My historical hero is Jonathan Edwards. I was challenged several years ago to begin reading some of Edwards' sermons and want to confess to you that I read one page of the first sermon and said, I will never understand what this man has to say. It was very challenging for me. I went back and told the gentleman who had challenged me to read Edwards that I couldn't find it uh, understandable. And he said, well, that's your problem. So let's see if you can mature enough to understand it. Well, that's the wrong thing to tell a 20-year-old. I went back and began to read, and he sent me to the most famous sermon ever preached in English. Many would say it's the most famous sermon ever preached since the closing of the canon and since Peter preached on the day of Pentecost. I read what most of you read in English literature and maybe poked fun at, sinners in the hands of an angry God. This was preached by Jonathan Edwards, who was a famous preacher in American history, certainly, but some argue the most famous preacher in all of church history since the Bible times it's themselves. He was an endearing husband, a loving father to, get this, 11 children. 
He was a piercing preacher, tireless mentor, discipler of young pastors. He was a compassionate missionary at the end of his life. He was even a university president. Jonathan Edwards lived a life that mattered both in this life and in the next. He framed his commitments when he was a 19-year-old in simple resolutions, which all began with the word resolved. And that's where our conference that many of your young people came to came from. He was alive, lived with resolved. I'm particularly interested, though, in that famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. How many of you have had to read that in high school? You have some familiarity with it. If you haven't, you've probably at least heard of it. Let me set the scene for you. 1741 in New England. God had been moving in the Great Awakening on entire cities. Whole towns were being converted to Christ. But there was a district called Enfield that had been mostly untouched by the Great Awakening. It was erupting all around them, but they were not feeling the effects of the Holy Spirit's move on the New England colonies. One of the pastors in the area wrote about these people at Enfield, and he said, They are thoughtless and vain and hardly conduct themselves with common decency. The preachers around Enfield decided to get a colloquium of preachers to go on Wednesday nights and to preach to the people at the church at Enfield to try to arouse the Spirit of God in the believers to minister to one another and to preach the Spirit of God's power in the unbelievers' lives. One man was supposed to preach and turned up sick, so to substitute for him, Jonathan Edwards was in the area and he, he substituted in his place. He had two sermons in his Bible and one of them was sinners in the hands of an angry God and on a whim decided to preach that sermon. It was July 8th, 1741, a Wednesday evening on a hot, muggy and humid Connecticut evening. Edwards took the pulpit and began to preach this sermon. It should have taken him about 45 minutes, but it took him almost twice as long to go through this sermon. He was a manuscript preacher. He just read his sermon and it took him twice as long. And the reason was the intensity of the sermon began to build and he had to stop several times to ask the congregation to calm down. Stephen Williams was there and said this about what happened. Quote, Before the sermon was done, there was a great moaning and crying throughout the whole church. People were screaming, what shall I do to be saved? Oh, I'm going to hell. What shall I do for Christ? Why? Because the sermon was exactly about its title. The description of sinners in the hands of an angry God. Edward's point was that life is full of deadly and lethal uncertainties and that God is rightly angry at those who have rejected the gift of his son for salvation. This sermon is full of some of the most graphic imagery and horrifically describing the condition of the unconverted soul. Perhaps you've heard or read some of this, but let me just highlight a paragraph from this sermon. That God holds you over the pit of hell much as one holds a spider or some loathsome insect over the fire. This God abhors you. He is dreadfully provoked. His wrath toward you burns like fire. He looks upon you as worthy of nothing else but to be cast into the fire. He is of purer eyes than to bear to have you in his sight. Verse 
You are 10,000 times more abominable in his eyes than the most hateful and venomous serpent is in ours. You have offended him infinitely more than ever a stubborn rebel did his prince. And yet, it is nothing but his hand that holds you from falling into the fire every moment. It is to be ascribed to nothing else that you did not go to hell last night than his grace. That you were permitted to awake again in this world after you closed your eyes to sleep. And there's no reason to be given why you have not dropped into hell since you arose this morning. And that God, God's hand has held you up. There is no reason to be given why you have not gone to hell since you have sat here even in the house of God provoking his pure eyes by your sinful, wicked manner of attending his solemn worship. Yea, there is nothing else that is to be given as a reason why you do not go at this very moment and drop down into hell. O sinner, consider the fearful danger you are in. End quote. What do you make of that? What do you make of this kind of preaching? What do you make of that kind of preacher? What do you make of that kind of God? My desire in my own heart is to see that the gospel is ever a priority and a focus. But it isn't. Even the very act of the church coming together and having communion in the Lord's Supper is evidence of the fact that God knew we would forget. Because the reason we do that is to remember me, Jesus said. I trust all of us have a desire to cherish Jesus Christ more, love him better, serve him more effectively, proclaim him more passionately. For our time together this evening, I want to address a simple question and let Paul's text in Romans chapter 5 answer it. The question, what's so great about the gospel? What is so great about the gospel? We just sang about it on the screens. We fellowshiped about it. I've heard so many of you in my fellowship here this weekend talk about the preciousness of the Savior. What is so great about the gospel that would motivate us to prioritize it and live it out beyond our initial salvation in daily love for the Savior and sanctifying grace? Well, the Apostle Paul answers that question in 16 chapters called the book of Romans. It's first and foremost a letter describing the doctrine of justification. In other words, how a man can be made acceptable before God in view of our sin and more importantly, how God can be reconciled to us. I understand this church spent a few years studying the book of Romans. Some would say a lifetime. And you know what? There's probably nothing else that you can devote your attention to more appropriately than that precious, precious book. When you come to chapter five, Paul has climbed, as it were, a plateau in the doctrine of salvation. He's been explaining and explaining and explaining. And in chapter five, verses six through through 11, it's almost as if he stops climbing and turns around and looks at the valley of salvation to enjoy the view. These few little verses are a breath of fresh air where Paul himself stops in the middle of this chapter and just takes a deep breath of salvation 
and enjoys it immensely, savoring the Savior and inviting us to do the same. Let's organize our thoughts then around answering that question. What's so great about the gospel? The first answer is in verse 6. Number one, the gospel satisfies the greatest need. The gospel satisfies the greatest need. Verse 6, for while we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. It's not popular today to talk about the unpleasant reality of sin and judgment, especially in Christian culture. One church's website records this testimony of a brand new member, quote, here I found pastors who teach gently in the way of Christ, absent of judgment, without condemnation, good people to share the best of what means the most to them. Let's think about that a minute. No judgment, no condemnation, people sharing the best of what means the most. It sounds flowery, but is this biblical Christianity? The scripture is clear. The Christian faith is very clear. That faith is actually the opposite of this testimony. Judgment and condemnation are not thrown out the window in biblical Christianity. Judgment and condemnation are nailed to the cross. And to forget those awesome and horrific realities is to forget the need for and the preciousness of the sacrifice of our Savior the worst of all possibilities and realities are not put out of mind. They're held central in the foolishness of God to crucify his son for the sins of those who would believe. Now, Paul sets up his description of the gospel's inherent greatness by laying down a black backdrop of human sin. Only when we understand this dark background can we form a true picture of God's infinite and precious love for sinners. Some think and even teach that God loves because somehow we're lovely or attractive. There's something special about us that turned God's eye toward us. Let's think about that for a moment. If we ever thought there was anything in us that made us lovable to God, that would be the worst of all tragedies. You say, say, why do you say that? Because there would always exist the constant threat of doing something that would cause him to love us less. Only those who have settled confidence that God loves us in spite of ourselves can trust that he'll continue to love us in spite of ourselves. Key issue in assurance of salvation has nothing to do with us being lovable, but everything to do with his being a lover of sinners. Look at the text. He calls us helpless. Thanks, Paul. Weak, helpless, without strength, feeble, sluggish in doing what's right, literally. This isn't the only description of us. He calls us more names. He uh, says in verse six, we're helpless. At the end of verse six, we're ungodly. It gets worse. We're sinners in verse eight. Verse 10, we're enemies of God. Now, what does all this mean? It means that we're unable to understand spiritual things, unable to seek the kingdom of God or enter into it, unable to seek after God himself, All because of Ephesians chapter 2, we are dead in our transgressions and sins. How bad is is our condition before God? How alienated are we from God? Well, let me try to give you a picture. It's like we're blind men in an art gallery. 
deaf men at a symphony. It's like trying to pick up an FM signal with an AM transistor without a battery and a broken antenna. And the wires have been cut. Oh, and the knobs have been broken off of this radio. And there's no on and off switch. And our arms have been chopped off. We have nothing to grab the, the radio with. And the radio is on the moon. And we're dead. That's the description. It's not more effort. It is utterly, utterly impossible. That gets worse. Verse 6, at the end, it says we're ungodly. Fierce opposition to God. Romans 1, verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness. There it is. And unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. In other words, we naturally fight against God's sovereign rule and against God's absolute lordship. The most unexpected reality, though, happens in verse 6. Just unexpected. And you can hear Paul's delight. While we were in this state, helpless and ungodly, Christ died for us. Why? Hold that question. We'll come and answer it in two verses. At the right time, not only at the right time in the progression of human history, but at the right time for us. Just a little Greek lesson. The word there for Christ died for us. I love this word. It's who pair it. It's a, it has two dimensions. When it says Christ died for us, it means Christ died for us like our representative. He did it on behalf of us. He died for us. But it also means that he died for us as our substitute. He died on behalf of us and he died instead of us. There's a world of meaning in that little word for the great doctrines of substitution and propitiation. Our greatest need is not defined by Freud, Skinner, Pavlov, Rogers, or the home shopping network. Our greatest need is to have the debt that we owe God for our sin paid. And at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. What's so great about the gospel? It satisfies our greatest need. A second answer to that question is in verse seven, verses 7 and 8. The gospel demonstrates the greatest love. What's so great about the gospel? It demonstrates the greatest love. Can I be a college pastor for just a minute? These verses are way cool. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone may dare even to die. Let's look at that for a moment. First question everyone asks when they look at this, if you've read the first five chapters, four chapters of Romans, you're saying, wait a minute, a righteous man and a good man? You've been telling us since chapter one, there are no good men. There is none righteous, not even one, Paul said. So who are these righteous men who show up in chapter five? He is just using these terms as an illustration. A good man and a righteous man in verse seven are synonyms. Not righteous in terms of being reckoned right before God, just simply someone who's upright respectable in the world's eyes. This kind of person would appeal to the affections of anyone. Maybe someone who would solicit our respect for giving the ultimate sacrifice. We understand this by wartime heroes, 
people who would give their life on behalf of their country, men who would dive on a grenade to save their friends. That's what he's talking about. For a good man, someone may dare even to die. I dare say that any parent here would gladly die for a child. There's a natural affection. There's people that we would die for. God doesn't love like that, though. He doesn't love by doing something for someone who's respectable. Two of the most important words in the whole Bible are but God in verse 8. But God, different than the way we love, but God loves differently. God demonstrates his own love in that while we were sinners as opposed to a righteous, respectable, good man, Christ died for us. He doesn't love like we love. He demonstrates his own love differently. A world and universe of difference between the way God loves and the way we love. Spurgeon wrote, God manifests his love in the death of Christ in a way that must have astonished every inhabitant of heaven. I almost picture that scene in heaven where (laughs) Jesus told his disciples, don't you know that I had, I had 10,000 angels who would have come to me to rescue me. That indicates, if I can use our sanctified imagination for a moment, I can just see this scene in heaven where the angels are watching, watching the cross about to happen. And they're looking at the cross and they're looking at God. And as First Peter said, they don't understand this. They, they long to look into this thing. And I think every angel in heaven had his sword drawn about to drop over into earth, his toes hanging off the diving board of heaven. And God said, no, no. This is the way I'm going to love sinners. 1 John 3, 1. See how great a love the Father has lavished on us that we would be called the children, we sinners, ungodly, unrighteous, enemies, wicked. We would be called the children of God. It's one thing to say we gladly take a bullet for our friend. It's another thing to say we've taken a bullet for Saddam Hussein and gone to the gallows instead of him to save his life or step in front of a bullet for Osama bin Laden. That's the picture here. Because we were far more heinous in God's nostrils than those men are in our minds. By the way, this is encouraging. The word translated demonstrates is a present tense. Present indicative, it means... God continually over and over keeps on demonstrating, not just at our salvation, but every time we think of the cross, it should be a demonstration of God's love toward us. The his own, by the way, is emphatic in the original. He demonstrates his own love. He didn't borrow this from the angels. This is his own. What's so great about the gospel? It satisfies the greatest need. It demonstrates the greatest love Thirdly, the gospel extinguishes the greatest threat. The gospel extinguishes the greatest threat. Verse nine, much more than, what do you mean? Stop, wait a minute, Paul, time out. Much more than, 
God loved us when we were sinners. He demonstrates his love in that way much more. What is much more than that? Much more than having now been justified, that's his act of loving at the cross, by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. What's all this about blood? It might be interesting for you to know that very little blood was shed on the cross. Crucifixion, people didn't bleed very much, perhaps a little bit from the feet, but once their arms were extended, the blood left their arm. Someone who was crucified wasn't a very bloody sight. Now, he was certainly bleeding severely from the flogging he received. When we read of blood, we're saved by his blood. It's not talking about the the blood that was running down his arms and legs or even on his face or down his back. It wasn't talking about corpuscles and platelets. This word blood would have identified to everyone who read it with a Jewish mind the sacrifices of Leviticus. The bloody, bloody sacrifices. Justification, in other words, is free, but it's not cheap. It's obtained at the cost of the cross. Hebrews 10, 11, and 12, just remember this. Every priest stands daily Every priest stands daily, daily, over and over and over. Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sin. Hebrews 10, 12 says, but he having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time sat down at the right hand of God. Now we're introduced to the wrath of God in this text. The greatest threat, the wrath of God. That's code words for hell. For many, the idea of hell is so morally disgusting and deeply offensive, they just dismiss it. Edward Donnelly writes, they regard hell as a primitive superstition, a crude boogeyman used by tyrannical churches to terrify and manipulate its gullible adherents. But God says here, there's no Christianity without solving the problem of God's righteous anger towards sinners and warning people of the coming wrath was at the center of what Edwards was saying in that sermon. Can I read you just a little bit more of that sermon? Unconverted men walk over the pit of hell on a rotten bridge. And there are innumerable places on this bridge so weak that they will not bear their weight. And these places are not seen. The arrows of death fly unseen at noonday. The sharpest sight cannot discern them. God has so many different unsearchable ways of taking wicked men out of the world and sending them to hell that there is nothing to make it appear that God had any need at any time of a miracle or some of something extraordinary to destroy wicked men at any moment. Hell is as real as heaven. God's wrath is as real as his love. If we take away a wrathful God, we take away the merciful Savior. He's not a wonderful, merciful Savior unless he is a awesome and awful and righteous judge. I think we view salvation wrongly most of the time, at least I'm gonna confess I do. 
Salvation, I think, of being saved from sin. Well, yes, we're saved from sin. Saved from hopelessness, sure, we're saved from hopelessness. Saved from hell, you bet. Saved from Satan, absolutely. But ultimately, let's remember this. This text tells us that salvation is being saved from God. Luke 12, don't fear him who can destroy body. Fear him who can destroy body and soul in hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Who's that? That, That's God. And that great threat is taken away at the cross. What's so great about the gospel? Well, it satisfies the greatest need, demonstrates the greatest love, extinguishes the greatest threat. Number four, it mediates the greatest conflict. Now we dive in a little deeper on this wrath of God. The gospel mediates the greatest conflict. Verse 10, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more, see the piling on of much more? Having been reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? The point's simple. If God reconciled us as his enemies, he will surely save us in the end as his friends. It's the argument from the greater to the less. If he did this massive thing, surely he'll do this lesser thing. Of all the great New Testament words used by the Holy Spirit to describe what has been brought to us by the work of Christ, this word reconciliation might be the biggest workhorse. Reconciliation. He reconciles us as enemies to God. We're reconciled. John Stott says, if we Christians dare say that we're going to heaven when we die, and we're sure of final salvation, as we dare say, it is not because we're self-righteous or self-confident. It's because we believe in the steadfast love of God, the love that will not let us go. I remember studying this passage back in February, and I was just full of this passage. I took one of my sons out to a special time and breakfast on a Saturday morning. We, Saturday mornings at my house are donut Saturday. I'll either take all three boys or one of the boys and just spend some special time. That sounds more spiritual than it is. It's a time Kim gets free. So that's the main reason for that. So I was sitting with one of my boys and we were talking about this. And I was kind of talking through this text with my eldest son. He's 11 and telling him, I, I mean, I was lost for a few moments in this coffee shop telling Luke, I mean, God is... He's made us his friends when we were his enemies. And he's used the death of his son to make me his enemy when he hated my sin and me who committed it. I just, I mean, Luke, this is amazing. And I, he had the most curious look on his face. He put his chocolate chip muffin down. And he says, Dad, it's really good to not be in trouble with God anymore. He got it. But it was precious to him because he understood what it meant to be in trouble with God. Parents, maybe the most important things we can impress upon our children is their need for the Savior. Contemplate often the greatness of not being God's enemy and being his friend. Number five best part what's so great about the gospel the gospel provokes the greatest response 
We could say the gospel provokes the greatest of all responses to anything. Verse 11. Not only this, much more than, much more than, and not only this. Do you see the building? We also exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. This word exult is different than the word exalt. Two different words, two different concepts. Exalt means to lift up and praise. Exalt means to jump up and down and scream with joy. It's an emotional workhorse. We exult, we, we overheat with joy in God, the focus and fountain of our joy, through our Lord Jesus Christ, the reason for our joy, through whom we now have received this reconciliation. Does salvation make you excited? Sometimes it does, doesn't it? And sometimes we just forget What joy that we are not in trouble with God. I heard someone explain to me that Christian joy is like putting water, a full cup of water in a person's hand and asking them to walk around with it. And every time you bump into somebody, you spill some of that water. That's like Christian joy. That's good, but it's not as good as it could be. Christian joy is like walking around with an open fire hydrant. And everyone around you gets a full dose of the most joyful person in the world. There are no Christian Eeyores. You know what? Eeyore really needs to get saved. We should pray for Eeyore. He's, he, he needs joy in his life. As simple as that is, and I don't want to be childish, but we ought to be Tigger for God. We are so overjoyed and bouncy, bouncy, fun, 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 fun that people just get around us and they say, what is in you? Why are you so happy? I'm not going to hell. (laughs) Do you want to be happy too? The best foundation for evangelism is our joy. I don't want anybody from Colonial to be walking around. I had a great time at church yesterday. Wow, fellowship. Joy, 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 joy down in my heart. It was just a blessed time, brother. You know, I mean, we can put on, all of us, we all, I, we put on this kind of candy-coated joy. You know where you find joy? Find a new believer. They just don't know not to be joyful. They haven't learned the game yet. There, just, we, there was a, a girl who was baptized in our church just about uh, three weeks ago who was saved the week before. She was in our ministry and I talked to her afterwards and it was, I was a little embarrassed and she, that she wasn't embarrassed because we were, the church was over and we were dismissing and she was down, down there and she grabs me. My, my three sons and my wife are sitting here. She grabs me. She's four foot nothing. She grabs me by the shoulders and she's going, Rick, I've been saved. I went, yeah, I know I heard. No, you don't understand. I was saved. I heard your testimony a minute ago. I saw the whole, it was great. Thank you. Congratulations. Rick, you don't, you're not hearing what I'm saying. I was saved from my sin. And it was, she goes off and I was like, this is weird. <laughs> this is foreign. And then I was really convicted. This is right. 
this is right. How do we remember the joy of our salvation? To remember the wrath of God has been assaged. Edward speaks to us from the grave. If we could speak with those who have died and inquire of them one by one whether they expected when alive and they used to hear about hell to ever be the subject of, subjects of the miseries of hell, we doubtless would hear one, another, one and another reply, no, I never intended to come here. I had laid out matters otherwise in my mind. I, I thought I would uh, live a long life and con- uh, contrive for myself. I thought I had a good scheme. I intended to take care of my soul eventually, but death came upon me unexpected. I did not look for it at the time it came, and in the matter it came as a thief. Death outwitted me. God's wrath was too quick for me. Oh, my cursed foolishness. I was flattering myself and pleasing myself with vain dreams of what I would do hereafter, and when I was saying peace and safety, then suddenly destruction came upon me. Was Edwards all fire and brimstone? Let me read you the end of this sermon. This is just, this just excites me to read. I love this phrase. This, this is one of those phrases I want to die with. And now, he says at the end of his sermon, you have an extraordinary opportunity. A day wherein Christ has thrown the door of mercy wide open. And stands calling and crying with a loud voice to poor sinners to come and flock to him. Hallelujah, what a savior. Do do you stop often enough to have a precious appreciation of salvation? Don't, please, please don't take it for granted. At center stage of God's saving plan stands one solitary figure, not a comprehensive plan. That figure is Jesus Christ, his son and our savior. Salvation is amazing, isn't it? Salvation is amazing. Are you amazed? Are you amazed? amazed. The goal of our living, the goal of our fellowship, the goal of our parenting is to live in such a way that we're showing that we are amazed at the cross in wonder over God forgiving us, crucifying his son instead of us, the lamb of God. In Exodus 12, You'll remember the day of Passover, the preparation. The, the families would bring in a little lamb, unblemished, spotless. Something strange happens in Exodus 12, though, that, that's awkward. They, it says they brought the lamb in the house for five days. Now, lambs weren't typically pets in those days. But they would bring this lamb inside the house for five days. Why? Because the family would develop an affection for this little lamb. At the end of five days, the father would bring all the family around. They would place their hands on the back of the lamb. He would get down on his knees and cup the little lamb's chin in his hand. 
and he would look up into his wife and into his children's eyes and say, we deserve death and judgment. But today, God has provided a Passover sacrifice for us. He would slice the lamb's throat. It would struggle. It would gasp for air with his windpipe sliced. He would grip it, grip it, and in a few seconds, it would fall limp and lifeless to the floor. And they understood that God had given a substitute. Jesus' cousin, John the Baptist, saw him coming to receive baptism and to everyone said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This, the power of the cross, Christ became sin for us, took the blame, bore the wrath. We stand forgiven at the cross. Oh, to see the pain written on your face, bearing the awesome weight of sin. Every bitter thought, every evil deed crowning your blood-stained brow. The cross is amazing. We cannot be anything but amazed. We are sinners in the hands of an angry God, but his hands have scars from our sin and those nails in them. Can we pray together? If you don't know the Savior, if you have not received forgiveness, what a great night, what a great text for you to experience. Please talk to someone tonight about your soul. Seek the help that you need to understand gospel truth. Find the substitute in Christ or find eternal wrath in a real hell for all eternity. Father, the cross is amazing and we're amazed when we look at texts like this. But we want to be amazed more. Fill our minds with thoughts of the cross. Fill our affections with love for the Savior. Fill our emotions of the depth and impact of that sacrifice. Fill our minds with theological truth that flowed from Calvary. Give us hope from his resurrection from the dead. Make us men and women who live in the power, in the shadow of the cross. Amen.